Very good. A few summers ago, we were in Nice, and we met this retired Church of England priest. And he was telling the story of his career. And he had spent almost 40 years in ministry as the chaplain at a very venerable, very ancient English public school, one of these extremely formal boys' boarding schools. And he told the story of receiving a, an invitation to a garden party in his pigeonhole. And he took note of the date, wrote it in his diary, tossed it in the wastebasket, didn't think about it again. And it was this garden party for major donors, venerable alums, very important people. <clears throat> so he wanted to dress appropriately. It was July, it was a sweltering day. And he put on this new, beautiful white linen suit that he had and showed up at the, the headmaster's garden. And he got there, and everybody was black tie. Everyone was in a thick, felt, black tuxedo, buttoned up all the way, tied all the way. It was sweltering. Everyone was just pouring perspiration. And he said it was like one of those dreams where you show up to work in your underwear. It was just <laughs> humiliating, awkward. He just felt awful and like an idiot. And he went up to the headmaster and said, Headmaster, I am so embarrassed. I am so sorry. You know, I know this reflects so poorly on the school that the chaplain shows up and, you know, it looks like I'm on a trip to Panama. And the headmaster in this just kind and urbane way said, Peter, you are the envy of us all. <laughs> and it makes one think, isn't the king's response to the guy without a wedding robe a tiny bit heavy-handed? You know, if this... Refined Etonian could be so gracious. The thing is, we often confuse allegory and parable. This is a parable, and it's not an allegory. So in an allegory, this person represents God, this person represents me, this person represents Abraham Lincoln, whatever it is, but there's this one-to-one -one correspondence. A parable, parabole, is casting two things together. It's setting two things side by side to illuminate one another. It's juxtaposition. So in this story, Christ says, to what shall we compare the kingdom of heaven? What can we say the kingdom of heaven is like? It's like this king who planned a wedding banquet for his son. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding banquet planned by a king. I have not, unfortunately. But I understand that they go all out for these kinds of things. So after the planning of this banquet, the world's oceans are devoid of lobster. The Champagne region has absolutely not a bottle left of wine. They have gone all out. And they have invited the who's who of the world. The billionaires, the A-list celebrities. It's going to be quite a party. And yet, it comes to the evening of the banquet, and the king and his son are sitting by themselves in the hall. The Rolling Stones are milling around backstage. You know, when are we going to go on? The caviar is getting warm, I guess. I don't know if you want cold caviar. But it's a very disappointing result. If I were to have a party and no one showed up, I might think about getting some new friends. This king has a different strategy. He murders everyone that he had invited. It's maybe a little extreme in some ways. But if you think about it, if this is not just here's the story about a king, or here's what God does to people he doesn't like. But instead, this is sort of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It actually makes sense. 
So if God is the source of all life, if God is the source of being itself, and you choose something other than God's party, it's not as though you're choosing, you have something else to choose from. So if you say no to life himself, no to being itself, the only other alternative is nothingness, nothing. So this king has invited all the A-list celebrities. Everybody from King Charles to Lady Gaga has said no, and so he opens up the doors to everyone on the street, compels absolutely everyone to come in. So rather than billionaires, you have third grade teachers and plumbers and murderers and soybean farmers and ophthalmologists. It's just absolutely everybody filling this hall. And there is one person who's not dressed appropriately who's not wearing a wedding robe. I'll tell you something surprising. First century people on the street in the ancient Greco-Roman world did not typically wear ball gowns and tuxedos all the time. They would have been in togas, in tattered cloaks, in rags. And as the former New York Times food critic Robert Ferrar Kappen points out in his book Parables of Judgment, the king would have had racks and racks of Valentino ball gowns, of Armani tuxedos. Everyone who would have come in would have been vested in joy and in gladness. So this one person, sitting by himself at the table, has just said, you know what? I'm not going to put on that monkey suit. I have a meeting later. I have a date later. I have a tea time reserved. I, I'm too busy for this. I'll come to God's soiree but on my terms. It's one little thing I can fit into my calendar, but you know, it's just, I'm just, I'm gonna make an appearance and I'm out. He doesn't get cast out into the outer darkness because he's poorly dressed. He walks out himself into the outer darkness because when you still consider yourself the center of the universe, when me being a big deal, when my grudges, my desires, me, me, me is my focus, there's really not room for the kingdom of God. If you were a soccer player, a professional soccer player, how do you think you spend your days? It's not actually, as one might think, sitting on the couch, just throwing potato chips into your mouth, like flipping channels. You're up at five in the morning. You're doing wind sprints. You're kicking. You're running. You're practicing all the time. You might only be on the pitch for a fraction of 90 minutes, and yet all day, every day, is sprint preparing for that 90 minutes. And so we as Christians, the Christian life is to be spent preparing for the kingdom of heaven. The secret to Christian life is to wear your ball gown to work every single day. It's to wear your tuxedo to the dentist every time you go. It's to constantly live as though you're already living in the kingdom of God. And what does this look like? Does it look like earning brownie points, getting gold stars, making God happy? It doesn't. Instead, it looks like what Paul describes in today's epistle. We have this job to do 24-7. Rejoice. Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. 
do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you make God your priority, if you make the awareness of God your reality at all times and in all places, at the doctor's office, at work, when arguing with your spouse, when taking out the garbage, if in all things you are rejoicing in God, well, the moment you get to the kingdom of heaven, you're not going to want to bypass the tuxedo line. You're not want going to not want to be vested in joy and gladness and peace and hope. Because if you're living in heaven 24-7, here and now, if you're constantly practicing for heaven, if you're constantly living out heaven, when you arrive, you will simply say, this is everything I've been looking for. This is my hope, my joy, my delight, my home. Amen.